Hi, and welcome to On and Off, our podcast covering the on-premise and off-premise beverage alcohol industry. I'm Melissa Dowling, editor of Cheers. And I'm Kyle Swartz, editor of Beverage Dynamics Magazine. Today, we're going to be talking about the spirits of Mexico, and our guest for that is tequila connoisseur David Suro. David is the founder of the Tequila Interchange Project, owner of the tequila brand Siembra Azul, and owner of Tequilas, an upscale Mexican restaurant in Philadelphia. David is also the co-author with Gary Nabum of a new book called Agave Spirits, The Past, Present, and Future of Mezcals, which just came out in May. So we're so thrilled to have David with us for many reasons, but just before we were originally going to record a tequila podcast with him back in February, his restaurant experienced a kitchen fire that Mm. heavily damaged the building. But most important, everyone is okay. So David... Thank you for joining us today and rescheduling. And uh, can you give us an update on tequilas and if you have any idea when you might be able to reopen? Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. That's very nice of you guys. And it's always great to share some agave stories with uh, people that appreciate them. So, yes, uh, the, the restaurant is in the process but the building is on the process to being released by the uh, insurance company. Unfortunately, the fire was caused by a, a purveyor of uh, service to the restaurant. Mm-hmm. So we were caught in the middle of this dispute between two insurance companies that they keep us, you know, without being able to start the reconstruction for six months. But uh, finally, the good news is uh, the permits for the release of the building is already given to us. So we are very excited to start working. We already start working. Uh, potentially, the, uh, if everything goes according to planning, we should be able to open in the early part of 2024. Yeah. Okay. So, That's good news. Yes. Fantastic. And you know, when you originally opened Tequila's restaurant in Philadelphia in 1986, just a year after moving to the US from Mexico, the year I was born, fine dining uh, Mexican concepts are not common here in uh, in America. Was it difficult to get people to change their perceptions here of the cuisine? Yeah, it was it was difficult, but uh you know you were you just born that year and I was only 23 years old. So mm. Thanks God, I was very naive and uh, I was just <laughs> doing whatever, the only thing that I know what to do, which was work with Mexican food. This concept of authenticity or, you know, fine dining Mexican, it was not in my in my radar. I just do what I was doing in Mexico, which was uh, working with Mexican food. And yeah, if I find that very soon after I opened that people was having a little bit of a hard time to understand that Mexican food was above and beyond chimichangas and fajitas and, and taco salads. Mm. So <laughs> we introduce we introduce uh, cuisine from different regions of Mexico. You can imagine the people's uh, reactions when we offer chicken with sauce that has chocolate in it, you know, mole poblano. <laughs> But uh, I think part of the uh, of this naiveness and, and this focus in introduced to Philadelphia and pretty much to the United States, this concept of uh, real food, real Mexican, culturally speaking, it was part of the success of the 
this 38 year old restaurant that uh, it survives that and now is surviving a fire, a devastating <laughs> fire. So, yes. Yeah. So I maybe, maybe not was of legal drinking age back in 1986. <laughs> <laughs> but good tequila was hard to find back then as yeah. well. I mean, we used to think we were super fancy, you know, asking for the Cuervo gold, which was mm -hmm. the gold standard back then. So what was the tequila scene like in the U.S. at that time for you? Uh, it was catastrophic. It was <laughs> horrible. In a word. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and, and part of this uh, approach that I have for, for the restaurant, it began right there. I, I choose to call the restaurant Tequila's Restaurant. So for most of the people, there was a really bad mistake and a very dangerous mistake <laughs> because the people relate the word tequila with something extremely casual and you know not even serious. So the restaurant since we opened, we have it's been tablecloth restaurant, formal service. The food was also obviously very elaborated. So according to the people, that name. It was not representative of what the restaurant was doing. So everybody keep uh, advising this young kid from Guadalajara to change the name. And um, no, I decided to uh, go in the, in the direction of helping people to change this perception and their misconceptions about Mexican food mm -hmm. and agave spirits. Because, you know, me being from Guadalajara, the tequila culture is more than just a drink. You know, I grew up with, surrounded by kids that were closely related to the tequila culture. At a very early age, I visited a distillery and not necessarily to drink, but to see this culture that uh, being from Guadalajara, you expose in many ways. So. Yeah, I take I take the word tequila and the concept very serious, and uh, we still are. Yeah. So you were already a tequila expert and had your own brand and you know producer before you did the book. So what did you learn in co-writing the book on agave spirits? Well, you know, it's uh, this fascinated culture of agave. You know, before we get into spirits, agave himself has been omnipresent on. Mexican culture and Mesoamerican culture for thousands of years. So it really, and I really mean this, is that we know very little about all different aspects of agave. We still struggling to know where is the origin of agave spirits. There's still a big debate, academic debate that uh, is, uh, you know, uh, an influential of the European cultures to arrive to Mesoamerica, or is a pre-Columbian culture. We still try to understand scientifically the uh, chemical reactions during fermentations, during distillations. It is a uh, good times to get deep into to dive into agave culture because there's still so much to learn and to research. So one of the things that I learned in the research that uh, we did on this book is that 
we literally are on the tip of the penca of, of an agave, the tip of an iceberg, or <laughs> we, we have so much to dive into and to dig into what affects and what makes agave spirits what, what it is right now. And I strongly believe that part of that interest and expansion of the markets and consumers of agave spirits is precisely that. It's not like, you know, you study for a couple of years and you pretty much know at all. It's still lots of mysteries. It's still a lot of uh, magical things that we try to figure out what they are. There are so many cultures within the Mexican culture that interpretate the agave spirits in, in different ways. You know, the people in Oaxaca see differently agave spirits or the agave plant than the people from Guerrero or from Puebla or from Jalisco. So it, it's still a lot to learn. And that's that's what we need more books. Uh, we need more mm -hmm. research. We need yeah. more translations. Also, it's a lot of academics in Mexico. They've been doing an incredible research, but it's not available to the world for language barriers, you know, or accessibility. Or, or some of the studies are just so academic that they just make it almost impossible for us mortals to understand. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, in this book, what we're trying to do is, is that to make it accessible, you know, they go into so many topics and, uh, and translate them in a way that somebody that, you know, just begin or is an advanced uh, agave spirit uh, person can understand and decodify. Speaking of learning new things and spreading education, better education about tequila and culture in general, you were one of the founders of the Tequila Interchange Project, and one of the initiatives is bat-friendly tequila. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, well, the Tequila Interchange Project born to the necessity of generating a voice of uh, people who cares about the sustainable future of agave spirits and um, you know people who are in in different areas or di different disciplines i thought that you know back in early 2000s that uh the prominent boys and the prominent influences on the agave culture it was pretty much only by the industry and you know the industry approach to agave spirits from uh in the majority from a spreadsheet perspective, how we can make more, how we can make faster, how efficiency is going to apply into our, our industry. And um, we, I think we don't realize, a lot of people don't realize that this is uh, the most agriculture driven alcohol beverage in the world of alcohol beverages. So it's not as simple as let's let's just get raw material and let's keep doing. The agave agro industry it needs a very very thorough you know planning for years. Remember, in the case of tequila, right now we we are we are we are start harvesting agaves at a very early age, three four years. But in the case of some mezcales, we harvest we have to wait up to thirty years. So the need for people, for voices to start to say, you know, hold on, 
let's try to plan and to be aware that it's a very sensitive in many different ways industry. So that voice was needed. And uh, I invite people from the academia and people from the uh, bar industry, people, uh, consumers, avid and responsible consumers to get together and generate this voice that is needed. So we we were very active in, uh, in for about six years, but uh, you know, TIP reached a point where it was very big, and it needs a lot of maintenance and it needs a lot of attention from full time you know people, and um, we get to the point where because we don't want to take money from brands. We were not able to keep up with that growth. So we decided to slow down. TIP has been dormant for a few years, but we are about to reactivate TIP. One of the things that TIP has been doing in the last couple of years is focus all the attention to the bat-friendly project. The bat-friendly project is a project that uh, is focused in the preservations of the corridors to feed bats for millions of years and part of the uh, challenges that uh, we've been having in these corridors is like the overproduction over harvesting of agaves uh, before they reach maturity so we are having a a very dangerous impact on uh, preserving the the passage of the pollinators through denominations of origins of uh, spirits so that is something that we've been very focused. That's something the TIP and Bad Friendly Project uh, unite forces to create more awareness on this very sensitive topic. Unfortunately, for the Bad Friendly Project, we have this increase on prices of agave that it was uh, break records of all you know the records that we have. We never reached prices as high as they are right now to make it almost impossible for producers to allocate the percentage of agaves they have to be allocated in order to obtain the recognition for the National University of Mexico to be bad friendly. But um, fortunately, agave prices are dropping finally to a price that it makes sense for everybody. And we're gonna be able to reactivate also the bad friendly project and start to get producers to participate in this very important project for the future of uh, the agave species. Yeah. Um, I wanted to get your take on the Cristalino category of tequila. (laughs) That was a big topic at Tales of the Cocktail um, last week. That's a very, very short answer. (laughs) Okay. Uh, (laughs) I think uh, that is a no-no. It doesn't add any positive things to the to the category of tequila or mezcal now, because it makes absolutely zero sense to have an agave spirit, agave. When we say agave spirits, we have probably the most diverse and complex raw material that is used to produce alcohol beverages. And we want to strip all those organoleptic elements from the spirit by filtering <laughs> this tequila. Uh, it, it just, 
is this absolutely nonsense you know? <laughs> yeah I, I have nothing not much to say about Cristalino other than I think it's an insult to mother nature and to the consumer also to to is uh, in a position where it can have this wonderful spirit like no other spirits in the world and to filter everything it makes no sense you know filter flavors you know aromas everything that is there is gone and then you know through uh, flavors uh, artificial flavors artificial aromas we recuperated some of that organolectic elements so no <laughs> that's kind of what i thought too just you know if it's better why don't why doesn't everyone filter it or why isn't that part of the process but i think one of the reasons that cristalinos came to the market is because the agave spirits and especially tequila uh, consumers the niche of consumers they are more and more aware of what is there to search on agave spirits is the tendency is going towards blancos, like non-age, which used to be the opposite years ago. And I think what happened is that a lot of these big tequila companies, they start to get uh, over inventories of añejos and extrañejos with no market. And uh, somebody came up with a brilliant idea to filter the color and and filter the flavors and made this cristalino so that was reintroduced into the market as something with no color more like blanco and um marketing is something they were very <laughs> successful in marketing in a way that make us try well they try to make consumers to believe that it's something sophisticated but it's it's, it's not sophisticated at all if you know a little bit of about agave spirits. With the rise of popularity in tequila right now in this country, are you worried at all about sustainability for the agave plant? Uh, yes, I am. There is enough issues that we have right now in, in that popularity. But one of the most interesting parts of this um, the popularity is that uh, the arrival of people from outside of the category who are approaching strictly from a financial perspective, without taking a, a close look at what are the impact of this grow environmentally, you know, what will be the impact in, you know, legislations, you know, this power of these mega corporations were arriving to the tequila and agave spirit categories are approaching in a, in a very aggressive way to grow. And, um, you know, some of the regulations, there can be an obstacle. And um, the lobbying of these corporations is extremely powerful. One example of this, which I think is already have a catastrophic effects, is uh, on the regulations of tequila. We used to, um, it used to be very clear, the specification that in order to harvest agave, we had to wait until the agaves were fully mature. Obviously, that was, if you see from the efficiency perspective, you know, the use of the land, sorry, but mother nature 
request years in order for these plants to fully develop and to give us, you know, enough sugars and give us enough flavors. But, you know, technology and this voracity on, on consumption of agave, it, it, it was, you know, the, the big industry decided to change regulations and they eliminate the word fully mature. So, you know, you just have to use agave and that's, that's it. But when they eliminate those two words, it opened the door for the big companies to use diffusers and to use all these, you know, highly efficient technology to start to harvest agaves, you know, as young as three years of age. Ugh. Even for agave tequilana weber, which is the out of all these species of agaves that are used in the production and distillation and production of alcohol beverages, even you know if this uh, species it takes the shorter period of time than any other spirit, any other agave in Mexico, is too short three years. So you know technology takes care of some of those uh, of of the young age by high efficiency on distractions of sugars. So yes, we harvest early, we have more agaves earlier, but um, what is the impact that we have on the ecosystems, on the environment and, you know, in the quality of tequila. So this arrival of people from the outside, they have a mentality of, you know, corn spirits, sugarcane spirits, grape spirits. It, it doesn't fit into agave spirits. And also, there's a lot of distractions for the consumer. There is this marketing machines that uh, bring celebrities and bring all these stories that they are really not linked in any way culturally, technically, with but an agave spirit should be all about it. So it's probably our last question, but with tequila is obviously on fire, mezcal heating up. What do you tequila's think? Tequila's restaurant on fire or tequila's... <laughs> oh, sorry, ouch. How <laughs> oh, bad wording. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, both are on fire. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think the next hot <laughs> agave spirit is going to be here um another category you mean um, well like ricea uh what's now i can't think of the other ones um well you have bacanora in yeah bacanora yeah I, i'm um, we're starting to see more of those in cocktails and on um yeah. stocked here but I was just wondering, you know, they're way behind tequila and mezcal, but what do you, of those, what do you think has the most potential here? Um, that, that's a that's a tough one because uh, both they have a lot of limitations. You know, the their denominations of origin are so limited, and um, same thing. I, I I think that the uh, capacity for these categories, these denominations of origin, to grow faster than what they are right now. It's almost impossible unless you take the tequilization route, you know, the tequila mm -hmm. path, which is to start to modify regulations, is to start to put pressure on produ and producers. You got to understand one thing that, uh, 
we cannot ignore there is a social economical impact also on, on, on all these denominations of origin. And uh, unfortunately, and uh, forget about the other denominations of origin outside of tequila or mezcal. We, if we take the tequila model, which is extremely successful. I mean, it's a category that generate billions of dollars. Where are the economical impact on the denomination of origin for farmers, for jimadores, for small producers of tequila? You know, they're still struggling because the mass production and the foreign investments and controls subtract everything out of the denominations of origin without allowing to trickle down to the people who technically own the denomination of origin. So those are issues that we, we, we cannot lose sight that uh, how this is not just about growth, it's not just about popularity, it's about also, you know, it is a denomination of origins. A denomination of origins they were created in order to protect, to develop social economical, you know, benefits for the people who own the denominations of origin. And uh, if you ask a question to any himador in the tequila category, if he see any positive impact in this tequila boom that we have in the last 15 years, he's gonna look at his uh, family and he's gonna look at his brothers and kids, they're probably migrating because there is no economical benefits mm. out of this. So those are topics that I think are very important for us as a responsible consumers. We start to raise our hand and make the questions, the hard questions, or the easy questions, you know, where you as a brand, where you as a company, where you as a project are, what are you doing in order to help to have a better future for not just the agave plants, but the people who take care of those agaves. Without that people, without that symbiosis between man and agave, we have no tequila and mezcal in the future. Well, yeah. well, thank you, David. That is a, a great way to sort of wrap up here. Thank you for joining us. The book is called Agave Spirits, The Past, Present, and Future of Mezcals, and it is out now. And David, <laughs> where, where can people, David's holding up a, a copy of the book, but uh, I'm not sure if our listeners are going to be able to see that as they listen to this. David, where, where can listeners find your book? Uh, well, you know, Amazon is make it available, uh, Barnes & Noble has it. If you want a, a, a signed copy, I can, you know, ship it. Uh, if somebody contact me via email, uh, I mean, it will be the, um, I cannot compete against Amazon for shipping, <laughs> but if somebody wants a, a No copy same day signed, delivery? <laughs> <laughs> no. But uh, yeah, but, you know, all major outlets for books and it's also the, available in audio books. It's an audio version of the book. At, uh, at the application of audiobooks. Yeah. Absolutely. And we will we'll link to your contact and we will also link to the Amazon purchase for the book in the description of this podcast. Thank you again, David, for joining us. Thanks to all of the listeners out there who joined us for this episode and on and off. 
And please be sure to join us next time when we'll be talking about yet another fascinating topic that spans the retail and restaurant worlds. Until then, cheers. Cheers. Cheers, guys. If you enjoyed the On and Off podcast, please hit the subscribe button. Also, you can find more great content at cheersonline.com and beveragedynamics.com, including recipes, product reviews, and interviews with the movers and shakers of the beverage alcohol industry. You can also sign up for our free weekly e-newsletters for both publications on our websites. Cheers.